Hi, I'm Joe Jakevich, and welcome to the Story Lanes podcast, the podcast where every week we do a deep dive into a movie or TV episode. And to go along with this analysis, every week I publish a graph of the story we're covering on the Storylanes.com website, a graph I produced while doing the analysis. You don't need to look at that graph, the podcast is standalone, but if you're interested in diving a little deeper, check it out at Storylanes.com. This week we're doing It Follows, a horror film that came out in 2014, written and directed by David Robert Mitchell and starring Maka Monroe, Keir Gilchrist, Lily Seep, Olivia Lucardi, and Daniel Zovato. And my apologies if I got any of those names wrong, as I probably did. As usual, this podcast assumes you've seen the movie. There will be spoilers, and there won't be detailed explanations of plot points. So if you listen to this without knowing the movie, you're out of luck. The movie will be spoiled for you, and you may not understand what I'm talking about. It's basically the worst of all worlds. So go watch It Follows if you want to listen to this podcast. It's a good movie, though not a great one, and it's only an hour and a half long, so you have time for it. And there are, I promise, lots of lessons to be learned here. Now, clearly, this is a departure from our last three shows. Those covered films from the 70s and 80s, great films that have stood the test of time. It Follows isn't in the same class as those. It's an entertaining horror movie. It's got some good moments and good scares. But I doubt that people will still be avidly watching this movie 30 years from now. So why analyze It Follows? There's a couple of reasons. First, it's useful to dive deep and analyze every movie. We don't only learn from the greats, we learn from the goods, and from the okays, and from the not-so-goods. Because looking at a movie that's less than great gives us a chance to see where it falls short and why, in spite of its flaws, it may still be worth watching. And make no mistake, this isn't a great movie, but it's not bad. It got a 96% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, though I think that's generous. And it was a success. It had a worldwide box office of $22 million, not bad on a budget of $1 million. That in itself is worth considering. What is there in this movie to bring in the audiences, and how was it made so cheap? And that leads to my other reason for analyzing this film. As I've said before, one of my motives in making this podcast is to become a better screenwriter by analyzing produced screenplays. And as it happens, I'm considering making a low-budget horror movie. So I want to look at other low-budget horror movies to see what makes them work, and what makes them cheap. It Follows is a great example, so I want to do a deep dive on it. And thus, this episode. So now, let's dive into the movie. It Follows is the story of Jay Height, a 19-year-old girl who lives in the Detroit suburbs. Early in the film, she has sex with a mysterious boy named Hugh. This afflicts her with a curse. There is a mysterious creature, never named except by the it in the title, that will relentlessly follow her to try to kill her. The only way to avoid being killed is to pass on the curse by having sex with someone else. Then that person is targeted. But if that person is killed, it will work its way back up the list and eventually once again come after Jay. The movie follows Jay and her friends as she comes to terms with this curse, tries to escape it, and finally finds some resolution. So basically, it's a supernatural sexual transmitted infection. Sex leads to death, kids. Remember that. The movie follows Jay and her friends as she comes to terms with this curse, tries to escape it, and finally finds some resolution. The first thing to note about this film is that the concept is fairly straightforward and well-suited to a movie. Once you have sex, it is coming for you. 
You can't stop it. You can run, but it will eventually get to you. It's slow, though, so it's going to take time to reach you if you run. From a cinematic perspective, that leaves plenty of time for a buildup of suspense before it arrives. And you can get out from under the curse, but only by passing it on to someone else, with all the moral problems that involves. This is a good old-fashioned horror trope. The only way to escape the curse is to pass it on to someone else. You might remember something like that from The Ring. Of course, in this case, it's made a little more spicy by the fact that the way to pass it on to someone else is to have sex with them. The creature itself can't be destroyed. It is utterly relentless, and it can appear as anyone. And it is only visible to people who are cursed. And if it catches you, it brutally kills you. In fact, it rapes you to death. All in all, this is a compelling creature. Nice simple rules, terrifying in the details, and actually easy to film. Which is one of the first things that is so low-budget about this film. The monster is just someone walking slowly. And it can be anyone. It appears in various guises throughout this film. You don't need a famous or highly paid actor. All you really need is a day player to play it in any given scene. It doesn't even talk, so all it has to do is walk. And for the next scene where it appears, you can use a different actor. And I would go so far to say that the simplicity of it is the best part of this movie. So a screenwriting lesson. You can make a terrific horror movie with a simple creature as long as the creature is relentless. And you don't even need special makeup or CGI effects. Creepy actors acting in a creepy, relentless way are enough. Atmosphere and creepiness are enough for horror, and they can be gotten on the cheap. So that's the monster. Now let's look at the heroes. The characters in this film are actually kind of basic. There's not much to distinguish any of them. Jay is not anything special. She likes boys and likes having sex. But even there, it doesn't seem like a deep passion. She never shows a desire to do much more than go on dates and lounge in her backyard pool. She doesn't have any particular talents or special traits. There's signs that she has had some issues in her life. She's on some sort of medication, and her mom seems to be both distant and an alcoholic. But the movie doesn't go deeply into this. She's just Jay, an every teen. Similarly, her friends are not terribly distinguished. Her friend Yara seems to be smart, but only because she reads a lot. Paul is nerdy and wants mostly just to get into Jay's pants, something he still wants even when he knows it's a possible death sentence. So he's a bit sleazy, holding out the bait of taking the curse from Jay as a way of getting a chance with her. But if he has any other distinguishing trait or abilities, I don't see it. Jay's sister Kelly seems to be just along for the ride. Greg, the next-door neighbor, is a cool guy, but really the most notable thing he does is stubbornly refuse to believe in the curse or that he's in danger, even after seeing a whole lot of strange stuff. Which leads one to say that Greg's just too stupid to live, so perhaps it's no surprise that he's the only one of this group to die. Jay's boyfriend, Hugh, the guy who infects her, a guy who we eventually learn is really named Jeff, is a little more complex at least insofar as he's willing to infect Jay to avoid the curse, but feels guilty about it. But he has less screen time in this film than any of the other characters, and even he isn't exactly a layered and nuanced character. The other people in this film don't really register at all. Certainly none of the adults have any impact beyond a vague presence and sense of uselessness. So the characters are not all that fascinating. They're certainly not a strong part of the film. We're not here to see their angst. No, we're here for the scares. 
and as targets of the scares, these characters do all right. Now, of the films we've seen so far, these characters are mostly reminiscent of those in Alien. They are all average people facing a situation that's anything but average. They are certainly not larger than life. Though note that I am not saying that the characters from Alien are as uninteresting as these, just that they are all cut from a similar cloth, a very realistic weave, not the larger-than-life action heroes of Die Hard and Aliens. But the characters in Alien are more distinct, with a couple of real standouts. Perhaps this is a horror movie thing. Perhaps horror works best if the characters are at a very human scale. It helps us identify with them more. That's another good lesson for the screenwriter. You don't need larger-than-life characters as long as you have a larger-than-life monster. Because that way, the characters don't get in the way of what's special about this movie, the monster and the curse. So now let's look at the movie and the way its plot is structured. In a lot of ways, It Follows is sloppier than the other films we've looked at. For example, there are scenes where characters talk for a good amount of time about things that have little impact on the film. There's a lot of scenes here that you could take out and not hurt the movie at all. And in general, the scenes are longer here than in the other films we've looked at. There are several pages of characters just talking with each other without much happening. Those conversations are much more wandering. And there's a whole lot of establishing shots that don't do much other than show just how quiet these neighborhoods are. An advantage of this is that it's cheaper to film. If you want an establishing shot of an empty neighborhood, all you have to do is send out a camera operator to get that shot. You don't need to light it. You don't need much crew. You don't need any cast. So that's one benefit. And it is relatively cheap to shoot a long conversation. When shooting a scene, a significant amount of time is spent setting up the shot. It can easily take an hour or more to set up the lights for a single close-up. So fewer shots means a cheaper shoot, and longer scenes generally mean fewer shots, especially when many of the scenes are outdoors, as is the case here, because you're generally not doing a lot of lighting when shooting outdoors during the day. So given that, you can see low-budget choices made throughout this script. That's worth noting for the screenwriter. You need to have budget in mind as you're writing the script. No giant scenes with hundreds of extras. Long shots with lots of conversation. Establishing shots of empty neighborhoods. All of that exists here. About the only scenes that have more than a few people in them are the classroom scenes where there's perhaps a couple dozen people in the shot. That's really only one or two scenes in a full movie. So again, if you know what to look for, this movie, while nicely shot and well lit, looks like it didn't cost much. There are no name actors in it, so the payroll was probably small. No large scenes. Locations are all fairly generic and were probably easy and cheap to find. There was one scene in the script set at the Detroit Zoo. That scene is moved in the film to the kitchen of a restaurant, which is undoubtedly a lot easier and a lot cheaper to get. It Follows is practically a masterclass on low-budget filmmaking. And now let's look at the plot structure. I'm going to start with my own analysis of how to break it down. I think this film breaks down fairly nicely into four acts in a teaser. In this case, the teaser is the first three pages of the script and the first few minutes of the film. A girl runs from her house. She flees to a lake where she sits, leaving a voicemail message for her parents, a message that sounds like a goodbye. The next morning, the girl is dead, brutally murdered. It's just a few pages, but it lets us know that we're dealing with life-or-death stakes, with something uncanny that preys on young women. But we don't yet have any more details. 
but our curiosity is piqued and we want to watch further. And the tone of the movie is set. Now, this is important because it's going to be a while before we get back to horror movie stuff. There is a long setup period here, almost 20 minutes before it appears again. So the teaser involves the audience, lets them know that waiting through the setup is going to be worth it, and that there's good things to come. After the teaser, we drop into the first act. This is all set up. First, we get a sequence where we meet Jay and her friends. Not much happens. Jay hangs out, her friends hang out, there's some low-level humor, and Jay gets ready for a date. It's all fairly innocuous. Then there's a sequence that contains Jay's first date with Hugh. There's something strange here. Hugh is skittish. He seems to run from threats that we don't see. Although they make out, he turns down a chance to go further. Strange, given how cute Jay is. We're left with an odd taste in our mouth. The idea that there's something off about this guy. Then comes the next sequence. We get a little more establishment of Jay's life, a view of her college, a talk with her sister. Then it's on to the second date with Hugh. Note that this second chunk of setup is a little strange. We've already set up Jay's life. Why do we need more here? It feels like narratively we're going backwards. It's a little messy, a little sloppy, and it feels like it derails the plot just a little bit. But we get through that setup quickly enough, and now we're back on track. Jay goes on another date with Hugh. This time they have sex. And then, in a pivotal moment, he knocks her out with chloroform. So, there's big events in this second sequence. Jay has had sex, and therefore, without realizing it, acquires the curse. But she learns about the curse fairly quickly, because the next sequence deals with the aftermath of her having sex. When she wakes up, she's introduced by Hugh to the curse. He gives her a chance to see it trying to get her. He does this to convince her that the curse is real, that she needs to protect herself. Because, remember, if it gets Jay, it's coming after Hugh next. Then he dumps her off at her home. After that, the scenes with police and her friends and all, but the key point is that whatever happened in that parking garage, Jay is now being followed by a monster that will kill her if it can. And that brings us to the end of the first act. We've met the characters, gotten the first hints of trouble, gotten the basic rules spelled out for us, and turned Jay loose. And now the story can truly get going. The first act accomplishes what a first act needs to accomplish. Get the story off and running. The second act covers Jay's initial contacts with It. In the first sequence, It shows up on her college campus, but she easily gets away from It. But then the second sequence happens and It breaks into her house and almost kills her. Then in the last sequence, with her friend's help, she finds Hugh, the guy who gives her the curse. It turns out his real name is Jeff, and he tells them all the rules. Now, Jay is awfully forgiving of this guy. Neither she nor her friends tell him off for basically giving Jay a death sentence. I think this is a failure of this film. If nothing else, such a scene could provide a nice additional source of conflict. Because you can never have too much conflict, and in this film, the only real conflict is with it. Either way, we're at the end of the second act, we fully understand the threat, and now all Jay and her friends have to do is deal with it. In the third act, things get real. In the first sequence, Jay and her friends hide out at Greg's cabin by the lake. That's nice for a while, and Jay learns how to shoot a pistol. But it eventually shows up and breaks up the party. And incidentally, we get one of the few effect scenes of this movie. Because that's another sign that this film is so low budget. There's almost no effect scenes. And the few that exist are fairly easy to produce. 
They mostly amount to showing it doing things from the point of view of characters other than Jay, characters who can't see it. So the scenes are of an invisible it attacking Jay. And that can be done with a guy in a green screen suit. It's fairly cheap and easy to do. Heck, I've done some of that myself with a green screen suit that costs less than a hundred bucks and fairly standard editing software. At the end of that sequence, Jay drives off in a car and promptly gets in an accident. She wakes up in the hospital and the next sequence is on. Greg is nice enough to take over the curse from Jay, and I'm sure that offer has nothing to do with the fact that it means having sex with a hot 19-year-old. In any event, they have sex, Greg is now cursed, but he doesn't seem to take it too seriously. And so, not surprisingly, in the next sequence, it kills Greg. Jay actually witnesses this kill, and it's kind of ugly. In the guise of his mom, it rapes Greg to death. Ugh. And that brings us to the end of Act 3. Now, curiously, Greg is only the second death in this film. And he's the last death. For a horror film, this movie has an awfully low body count. I still added a debtor's row to the story lane's analysis because it feels like tradition now. But it's a sparsely populated row. Only Greg and Annie, the girl from the teaser, appear in it. Anyway, Jay is once again the target of the curse, and she's seen just what that means. So now we're into Act 4, the finale. First, Jay flees from the horror of seeing Greg killed. She considers having sex with some randos, just to pass on the curse. But she resists the temptation, thus showing that she's a decent person who wouldn't trick someone into being cursed. Though this moment is a bit underplayed. She's tempted for a moment, then doesn't go through with it. It's not even perfectly clear that she doesn't go through with it. The film might benefit by having this moment be a bit more clear, by having Jay more clearly wrestle with the temptation of just going out and passing on the curse. It seems like a major choice for such a small moment in the film. But having refused the temptation, Jay has to decide what to do next. And here's the next sequence, and it's the biggest action sequence in the film. Paul suggests a plan, and Jay and her surviving friends try to trap it in a swimming pool. That doesn't end well, but at least they get away, though Jay's friend Yara gets accidentally shot in the leg and ends up in the hospital. But this convinces Jay and our heroes that there's no killing it. So in the next sequence, Jay finally gives Paul what he's been wanting this whole movie, a chance to get the curse from her. Which means, of course, a chance to have sex with her. He takes the curse, and there's a suggestion that he passes it off to a prostitute, which is a pretty rotten thing to do. But here again, it's not entirely clear what Paul does, and more clarity would be nice. Finally, in the last sequence of the film, life goes on for our heroes. But Paul and Jay have a noticeable bond, and in the last shot there's a strong hint that it is still hot on the trail of the two of them. It's a bit of an ambiguous ending, but it may be the best kind of ending you could have in a movie like this. You can't really defeat the monster, that would take away its power but you don't really want to see your hero killed either. So leave things a little bit ambiguous. It works. Anyway, that's the basic structure as I see it. There's a teaser plus four acts, with each act having either three or four sequences. The acts are set up, first contact with it, it strikes hard, and the final showdown and resolution. A fairly straightforward escalation of tension and conflict. It's not super clean. As I mentioned, there's lots of scenes of people just hanging out and lots of establishing shots of various parts of their world. Watching this movie isn't exactly riding a rocket ship. But there is tension and there is escalation. The structure does work, 
the individual scenes of conflict with it are effective and they are reasonably well spaced. So let's take a closer look at them, which I've added to the story lane's analysis in a lane I call It Sightings. First off, we never see It except when we're seeing things from Jay's point of view, so It doesn't appear until Jay gets the curse by having sex with Jeff. The first few times It appears, it's just a scary looming presence trying to get to Jay, and it's fairly easy to avoid. So, atmospheric and scary, but still kind of low in the tension level. But then on page 44, it breaks into Jay's house. She manages to get away, but things do start to get serious. Jay's home has been invaded. It doesn't actually appear again until page 71 when it attacks Jay at the lake. This is a big appearance that includes the invisible it attacking Jay as seen from the point of view of Jay's friends. She manages to get away, but only barely. It almost gets her. The next appearance is on page 85 when It kills Greg, again a major escalation. We then get a brief view of It on Jay's roof on page 91, but then it doesn't appear again until page 96 when it attacks Jay in the pool. Jay manages to get away, but only barely. And although Paul shoots It in the head, we don't think it is killed. Finally, in the last scene of the film on page 106, we see what might be It following Jay and Paul down the street. So just as happens with the action of this film, its appearances escalate in tension and conflict. The first few times we only see it from a distance. Then it breaks into Jay's house, driving her away from her home. It next attacks at the lake, hurting Paul and getting its hands on Jay. Then it kills Greg. Finally, we get the attack at the pool, where it comes close to killing Jay. Escalating conflict, escalating monster appearances, escalating tension just what we want, and all fairly well structured. But here's a criticism. The major confrontations with it, while they escalate nicely, don't really build from each other organically. In particular, look at the two major fights with it, the attack by the lake and the fight at the pool. You could easily move that fight at the lake to just about anywhere and it would still work the same. Suppose it was at a beach house, or a luxury penthouse, or horse ranch, or anywhere else that you could imagine. All you need is Greg having access to such a place, and the story proceeds pretty much as it does. The location doesn't come from anything organic here. It's just a generic cabin in the woods by a lake. Similarly, when Paul comes up with an idea to set an ambush for it, the pool makes for an interesting setting, and probably one that's easy and cheap for the filmmakers to access. But it doesn't grow organically from anything else in the film but it's not something that logically is required, that logically follows from what happened before. Now contrast that with the films we've looked at so far. In Aliens, Ripley meets the alien queen in the nest because that's where she has to go to rescue Newt. And Newt is there because an alien would naturally take a human captive back to the nest. Similarly, the diehard explosion on the roof of the building grows organically from Hans's need to cause maximum chaos to allow him to escape in the confusion and we're already well acquainted with that roof. We're not going to a brand new place that has just been dropped into the film. We are returning to some place that we have visited before. There's something very organic about the way this is done. By comparison, Paul suggests setting a trap at the pool because... There's no deeper reason, no way in which it grows organically from the rest of the story. I think that's one of the things that separates It Follows from the classics that we've studied so far. A certain sense of organic inevitability. But all in all, this is a fairly straightforward structure. 
So how does it look through the lens of our standard screenwriting models? Now those models actually apply fairly well to this. Take three-act structure as an example. This is one of those movies where I see a movie having four acts, but you can also view it as three acts in a midpoint. So just combine my acts two and three into a single act and leave my first and last acts in place. And it works. So the acts are the setup, ending when Jay comes home from her date from hell, the middle act, ending with Greg's death, and the finale, which most notably includes the fight at the pool. So what is the inciting incident in this film? I think the most likely candidate is when Jay has sex with Jeff, thus getting the curse. But it could also be when Jay first goes on a date with you. It could go either way, really. But I think the midpoint is clearly the moment when the group has found Jeff and he tells them the rules. Note that this happens on page 59, so a couple of pages late for a 107-page screenplay, but pretty close. Now, as usual, I put that midpoint at the end of my Act 2, but it also fits in the middle of a three-act structure Act 2. This largely comes down to how you define acts and how committed you are to three-act structure. But note this about the midpoint. Although it gives definition to the second half of the film and increases the level of conflict, it is not the world's most dramatic midpoint. It's just a bunch of kids sitting in a backyard talking. There's no action involved at all, no visuals of note. So yeah, a midpoint, but not really a high point of the film like the other midpoints we've seen. It's certainly no chestburster scene. So about the only way this film doesn't fit three-act structure is the inclusion of a teaser. Because three-act structure doesn't really allow for teasers, and this film clearly has one. Oh sure, you could say that the teaser is part of the first act, but most teasers, this one included, don't really fit directly with the action that follows. So I think it would be wrong to claim that they are part of that action in the same act. Your mileage may vary, as always. So, how does Save the Cat view this film? Well, there is that teaser. Once again, we have to ignore the teaser because Save the Cat does not allow for teasers. But with it ignored, we have a fairly good opening image, Jay leisurely floating in her backyard pool. Now this was a hot tub in the script, but at some point they used an above-the-ground backyard pool instead. I don't know if it was a budget thing, I don't know if it was just the house they were able to find, I don't know if it was an artistic decision. Either way, we have Jay floating in the pool and not Jay soaking in a hot tub. But after that opening image, the order of beats is off here, and the page numbers are way off. For example, to the extent that there is a statement of a theme, it's in the image of Annie, horribly killed by it, which comes in the teaser, which I think is before the Save the Cat-style opening image of the film. Then there's the B story, which in this case is Paul's obvious desire for Jay, and that's introduced almost right away on page 5, instead of the page 30 that Save the Cat calls for. And there is, as I noted, a second section of setup that appears after Jay's first date with Jeff. Setup that introduces her college and tells us a little more about her in a conversation that she has with her sister Kelly. We have the same problems with identifying the catalyst as we had identifying the inciting incident. And Jay never really debates whether to accept the call to action. She's just sort of stuck with it. That actually raises the question of how valid is that debate in stories like this? A story where the adventure is not chosen by the protagonist, but is thrust upon the protagonist. I suppose Jay could take a little time to decide whether or not she's going to take this seriously, but then she'd just end up dead, like happens with Greg later on. 
We saw something similar in Die Hard, where Bruce Willis never seriously debates whether or not he's going to do something about these terrorists. They show up and he's off and running. When it's not the character's choice whether or not to accept the adventure, a debate or a refusal of the call doesn't really fit in well. Now an interesting thing happens here. If we think of Jay's first date with Jeff as the catalyst, Jeff actually shows doubt about whether to initiate Jay to the curse. He doesn't have sex with her on that first date, though she's clearly willing. So perhaps it's Jeff who debates whether or not to set things rolling. That's an interesting twist on the usual approach, where it's the protagonist who makes the decision. I like Jeff's doubts for lots of reasons. This is only one of them. I'll discuss a little more further. We've already discussed the midpoint, which is the same in Save the Cat as it is in three-act structure. The next thing worth examining is the all-is-lost moment, which seems to be when Jay is attacked at the lake house, and the dark night of the soul, which is when Jay decides to have sex with Greg and Greg ends up dead. The film matches those Save the Cat beats fairly well. The rest of the film is fairly straightforward, leading to the final image of a nervous Paul and Jay walking down the street, possibly followed by It. This does make for a good pairing with the opening image of Jay, when she floats peacefully in her pool. Her world has changed. Now she's living a hunted, anxious life, not just floating in water. But she is not alone. She has Paul as a partner in this new life of hers. It's a good pairing of images. So all in all, Save the Cat mostly works, but there is some awkwardness with some of the details. This is something we've seen in other films. Now there's only a few other things to add about the hero's journey. First, there is no real refusal of the call, though Jay does seem to have a moment where she doesn't yet get that she's in this new dangerous life. And curiously, Jay's mentor is Jeff, the guy who got her into this mess in the first place. After all, he's the one who tells her the rules. He is the one who tells her what she has to do. And I suppose you could say he's the one that gives her the call to adventure by having sex with her and cursing her. Note that there are two major scenes where he mentors Jay, the scene in the parking garage right after they have sex, and the scene in his backyard after Jay and her friends hunt him down. Then he goes off on his merry way, living his life alone, disappearing from the story like a good mentor should. Now, from a hero's journey perspective, the light at the end of Jay's tunnel is death when she sees how Greg is killed. It's not what you'd normally think of as a reward, but this film does what it can. But it is a kind of escape, at least. Finally, I'm not sure if you can really say that Jay meets her test, unless we think that meeting her test means accepting the rules of the curse and passing it on to Paul. And of course, her reward is an uneasy life, always to be hunted. So this doesn't have the typical hero's journey end. It does not end in triumph, but rather bare survival. Now, I only really saw two subplots in this film, though there could have been one more. The two are the story arcs of Greg and Paul, the two guys who have sex with Jay to accept the curse from her. Greg's arc ends badly, of course, largely because he doesn't take the curse seriously and so ends up dead. Paul, on the other hand, gets what he wants. He clearly wants to have sex with Jay from the first time we meet him, and he continually offers himself up as a sacrifice for her throughout the film. It's kind of a bit skeezy, actually, but he does end up getting what he wants, and he even ends up with Jay at the end. Though given that it seems to be stalking them, that may not last for long. The subplot that might have been is Jeff. His subplot involves him passing the curse onto Jay, which I suppose is a full subplot of sorts, but it doesn't really have any resolution which it could have had 
Even Jay and her friends holding Jeff to account for what he did would have led to some completion for that subplot. As it is, Jeff becomes less of a character and more of a plot device, who only exists in order to have sex with Jay and give her the curse. I think this is a big loss. I really wish they had done more with Jeff. There's a potentially interesting story there. The guy who was willing to commit an evil act to weasel out of the curse. That seems potentially more interesting to me than Jay's story. I would love to see Jeff wrestling with what he did and maybe even seeking redemption in the end. But the film doesn't go there. Now do note that the three potential subplots all involve guys who have sex with Jay. I'm not quite sure what that's supposed to mean, but take it as it is. Now there are other hints of things that are going on in the background. Jay seems to be on some medication. Is it perhaps for psychological issues? Her mom appears to be an alcoholic and certainly not fully aware of what's going on in the lives of her kids. But the movie doesn't do anything with these beyond offering hints. There's no full subplots here. So what is the theme of this movie? Well, it's kind of obvious, really. Don't have sex, kids. It will kill you. Yeah, I know. That's awfully regressive. It goes back to the days of the 80s slasher films where having sex is the quickest way to get yourself killed. But there it is. So now that we're done with the analysis, we have the question, how good is this movie? I think it's okay. Not a great movie, and I doubt that people will be doing a deep dive analysis of this 30 years from now. But it's an entertaining way to spend an hour and a half. It does provide a good escalating set of conflicts. The monster is nicely done with a lot of elements that make it a good source of dread. And then there's the twist. You can only escape, or at least delay, your fate by having sex with someone, thus cursing them. That's a nice factor. It's both titillating and a good moral dilemma. And this is a terrific example of how you can make a good horror film on a low budget. So it's definitely worth studying from that perspective. But still, I can't help but wish that they had tightened up the story, not had quite so many long, rambling, and boring conversations. And I wish they had done more with Jeff. I find him more interesting than Jay, especially if Jeff is given a chance to redeem himself. And similarly, show us more of Jay's wrestling with the question of whether or not to have sex with someone else. There's chances to do that here, but the movie never takes those chances. And finally, while the danger sequences build in scope and scale, they don't really lead organically from one to another. Each new sequence seems to come from nowhere. Why a lake house confrontation? Just because. Why a final fight in the pool? Um, because that's where Paul first kissed Jay, something that wasn't established early on? It's all a bit random and so not entirely satisfying. But still, It Follows is well worth a study, both because you can see what worked and because you can see why it's not quite up to the standards of the other movies that we've looked at. So now let's finish this off with three lessons for the screenwriter. First, a good monster doesn't have to be expensive. If you're creative, you can get away with an odd-looking actor wearing tidy whiteies Second, it's always good for the midpoint to be big and flashy, but it doesn't need to be. A midpoint can be just a bunch of kids sitting in a yard talking. And third, making a cheap movie is doable, but it does require thought and planning, with few scenes requiring lots of extras, easy-to-acquire locations, unknown, meaning inexpensive, actors, and few, if any, effects shots. So that's what we've got this week. As always, check out the notes at storylanes.com. 
and there you'll also find the graphical analysis that this discussion is based on. You can also find links to the script that I used for the analysis and for anything else that I felt like linking to. And I'm also going to put up my script for this episode, something that I'm going to regularly do. You can read my analysis as well as listen to it. Though I should give you a warning, this is the script that I used recording the episode. It is not a transcript. And I do make up things as I'm going along and talking. For example, you won't find this little passage in the script. So join us next time. As of now, I'm planning on looking at 2019's Little Women. This is another big departure from what we've looked at so far, but it's an interesting screenplay that does some fun stuff. And hey, it did get nominated for a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar, so it's got to have something worth looking at, right? This is Joe Jakevich in the Storylanes Podcast. Talk at you next time.